Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. I want to start this segment of the program with something which is really under the headlines, and it is of historical interest and modern application, actually, that I came across uh, just the other day, and I want to share it with the listeners. Uh, The ascent of Prince Charles to the British throne, who is now known as King King Charles III, turns out, according to some people, this is a problem for advocates of the Palestinian Arab cause. The new king's connection to a key Jewish holy site in eastern Jerusalem could focus attention on a subject that the Arabs are anxious to avoid. And as I said, I came across this, I found it of tremendous interest. King Charles III, who is now the king, had a grandmother. Her name was Prince Alice, and her aunt, the Grand Duchess Elizabeth, are both buried in a small Christian cemetery on the Mount of Olives, and they're buried near the largest Jewish cemetery in the world, or what we call Har Hazetim, the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the old city of Jerusalem. Now, it turns out that the Mount of Olives is in that part of the city that the Palestinian Authority calls Arab East Jerusalem. In other words, the Palestinian Authority says that the area would be the capital of Palestine when it becomes a state. According to the Palestinian Authority, Zionists, whether Jews or Christians, have no right to be there. They're illegal settlers. Now, the cemetery where the two royals are buried belongs to the Church of Mary Magdalene, which is a Russian Orthodox church and a convent that was built at the foot of the Mount of Olives in 1886 by Tsar Alexander II. Now, uh, it's located directly across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount, which is the holiest site in Judaism. Now, Princess Alice who lived in Greece during World War II, sheltered a Jewish family from the Nazis and was posthumously honored by Yad Vashem here in Jerusalem as one of the righteous among the nations. Alice, who passed away in 1969, left instructions to be buried at Mary Magdalene Cemetery Her remains were transferred there in 1988. And again, keep in mind that she is the grandmother of the present King of England. Now, the desire of the royal family to be buried in Jerusalem demonstrates a long-standing affection for the capital city of the Holy Land, something that reflects what we call Christian Zionism. Now, 
whether or not Alice, the his grandmother, and uh, her aunt, Grand Duchess Elizabeth, consider themselves Christian Zionists, I doubt very much if they did, and whether or not the new king, Charles the Charles III, thinks of himself as a Zionist doesn't really matter. The historical facts speak for themselves. Charles knows that his Bible describes the founder of their religion traveling and residing in territories with Hebrew names, not Arabic names, because those areas were, and they still are, central parts of the Jewish homeland. If there had been a Palestinian authority back in those days, no doubt it would have denounced Jesus as a Zionist settler. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, Charles, when he was still a prince, visited the graves of his grandmother and her aunt when he attended the funeral of Shimon Peres back in 2016. Now, perhaps in the eyes of the Palestinian Authority, it made Charles an accessory to Zionist settlement activity. Interestingly, Charles's visit to the Mount of Olives was undertaken secretly at the time, 2016, without the knowledge of the public or the news media, and it was kept secret, apparently, for fear of offending the Palestinian Authority. So it's easy to see why the Palestinian Authority would have been angry over Prince Charles's visit to his relatives' graves. Any focus on the Mount of Olives is a public relations disaster for the Palestinians. It reminds the world that one of the most important Jewish religious sites in the world is situated in eastern Jerusalem, that cemetery. So this shatters the myth that it's an all-Arab territory that belongs only to the Palestinians. The Palestinian and its allies in the media call it Arab East Jerusalem, but that's just a propaganda term. The Jewish people's roots in Jerusalem, including Eastern Jerusalem, go back thousands of years long before any Arab claims. So there's another reason, by the way, that talking about the Mount of Olives is a public relations headache for the Arab propagandist. Anybody who takes even the briefest glance at the Mount's recent history discovers that when the so-called moderate Jordanians occupied the area from 1949 to 1967, they destroyed thousands of Jewish tombstones, which they used for paving roads and building latrines in Jordanian army barracks. They had no respect whatsoever for the Jewish graves. That experience reminds everyone how Arab regimes have mistreated Jewish holy sites throughout the century. That's a legacy that the Palestinian Authority itself has continued to the very present day. 
that has, for example, repeatedly de desecrated the tomb of Joseph in Nablus and the tomb of Rachel in Bethlehem? When will the Jordanians and the Palestinian Authority pay reparations for all the damage they have done to Jewish religious sites, especially cemeteries? So, the existence of the Church of Mary Magdalene is yet another public relations headache for the Palestinians. It was established in 1886 at a time when no Arabs called the area Palestine or called themselves Palestinians. That's yet another reminder that Palestinian national identity is a recent and shallow invention created not because Palestinians are any different from Jordanians or Syrians, but they tried to use the name Palestinians as a weapon against the Jews. If anybody asked who was a Palestinian before 1948, the chances are they would say the Jews living here in Mandate Palestine. They carried um, formal documents like passports that said Palestine. So the founders of the Mary, Ma Mary Magdalene Church back in the 1880s would have scoffed at the notion that the land on which their church was built, where the remains of Alice and Elizabeth were, is occupied as Palestinian territory. They know that the Bible which they revere calls the territory the land of Israel, not Palestine. They know that the Bible repeatedly refers to Jerusalem as the capital of the Jews and that Jerusalem is not even mentioned once in the Koran, the Muslim holy book. Now, how King Charles III, the new king, how he interacts with Israel, and whether or not he visits his illustrious family's graves in Jerusalem remains to be seen. But the facts about why his relatives are buried there and who the city and the country belong to are part of a historical record that cannot be denied. So this is something I saw an article about, and I found it quite interesting. King Charles III went to visit there. He got to visit the graves of his grandmother and her aunt. He did it secretly uh, when he was here in Israel. Question is, how will he act toward these areas now that he's king? The, his mother never visited Israel. She visited almost 200 countries during her, seven, during her 70 year reign, and she never visited Israel. Apparently, the state, the, the, uh, the Foreign Affairs Department of the British government told her that would not be a good thing to do. Who knows? But it, it is simply a fact that she never visited here. Let's see what happens now that. Charles has become king. I want to move on to another subject now, which I think is quite pressing. Uh, right now, millions of American students, including Jews, are starting the academic year at colleges in the United States. Now, alongside their formal education,
they will be exposed to organizations promoting a wide range of social causes. That's the way it is on campuses. For the Jewish students, this also means a high likelihood of being harassed by people who spew anti-Israel hate speeches under the disguise of pro-Palestinian activism. While Jewish organizations tend to focus on the impact this has on Jewish students, there are those who feel that it's time uh, we shifted our focus to the large majority of non-Jewish Americans who hear and often believe these harmful and false claims against Israel. Slowly but surely, Israel's value to Americans, I'm talking about Americans in general, Israel's value to Americans is dropping. For example, the latest Pew research shows that older Americans express much more favorable views toward Israel than younger Americans. And the gap is significantly larger among adults who identify as Democrats politically. These trends are a strategic threat to those who care about Israel and its relationship with the United States. In general, the Democratic Party has moved far to the left. It's very different from the Democratic Party I knew when I grew up. However, unlike other challenges that have a clear wake-up call moment, this what's happening with the Americans is ongoing and incremental. Its changes are happening slowly, and it's extremely hard to operate against them. So uh, the truth of the matter is that action has to be taken now before it's too late. Beside the Jewish students, the anti-Israel and often anti-Semitic sentiment on campuses affects the lives of the rest of the entire student body. As these people grow up and graduate and take key positions in American society, positions in business and government and social activism, these misconceptions will continue to shape them shape them, and shape the world around them. Now, we know that Israel is a thriving democracy. Arab citizens of, citizens of Israel serve in parliament on the Supreme Court. They're also the heads of hospitals. The, uh, the, uh, here in Israel, uh, we elected the first female prime minister back in the 1960s, which something the U.S. has yet to do, and members of the country's LGBTQ community can proudly march in the streets or openly serve in senior military positions. Most Americans know very little about Israel. I think many of them, perhaps most of them, would have difficulty finding Israel on the map. So they're clueless about Israel. 
Moreover, many younger Americans who are completely misinformed and disoriented thanks to the intentional disinformation campaigns of anti-Israel groups which have harnessed social media and populist taglines to tarnish Israel's names. Now this is affecting the people who will be the future leaders in business, in politics, and social activism, and that is dangerous for Israel. They do this by creating symmetry between the Star of David and the German swastika in many cases, and by spreading lies, just outright lies and blood libels. Their aim is not only to hurt Israel, but make it Israel one a country that is hard to do business with. This is epitomized by the BDS, Boycott, Sanction, and Divestment Movement. It's kind of a thing that didn't exist even five years ago. Unfortunately, the leadership of the American Jewish community has allowed the vast majority of the American public to remain ignorant about Israel. Many people thought if they educated young Jews, they would be Israel's best ambassadors. However, as the past 25 years have proven, without actively engaging the general public, the opposite is true. Younger Jews are affected more by their peers and anti-Israel social media than they are by Jewish institutions or Jewish, uh, I don't want to use the word propaganda, but Jewish knowledge. So the truth of the matter is, it's time for Jewish leadership to wake up. For decades, communal organizations, professionals, lay leaders, and philanthropists have dedicated time and resources to educate people within the community, the Jewish community. In essence, they spent more of their effort targeting 2% of the American population, that is the Jews, and then neglected to carve out messaging, programming, and engagement for the 98% of the people uh, that make up the rest of the United States. Like any brand, Israel's name evokes certain thoughts and emotion. When those emotions are positive, people want to relate to Israel. And when they seem negative, the public tries to distance itself from Israel. So the truth of the matter is that the organizations in America and those who uh, produce uh, the Jewish newspapers and so forth, they have to start treating Israel as a brand. And like any marketing professional, it it will tell you this means running routine day-to-day awareness campaigns as well as crisis management ones if and when they're needed. Branding campaigns aren't easy, but they work. They are also irreversible. It's not only true of Coca-Cola or Nike, but for social causes. 
The, uh, for example, American examples from our lifetime include United Negro College Fund, which had a brand name. They said, a mine is a terrible thing to waste. 35 years ago, the American Jewish community had its own tour de force of social activism under the iconic Let My People Go. We've got to renew that approach. The first item I want to touch upon is one that is really, really under the radar. Uh, the question is raised, are too many Germans converting to Judaism? And this is a de debate that's going on in the Jewish community in Germany. A little bit of history first. German Jewry was eviscerated by the Holocaust. After the Allied-run displaced person camps were closed in the 1950s, there were only some 25,000 Jews living in former West Germany, and only a few hundred living in East Germany. There were also thousands of people who wanted to convert to Judaism. Uh, after Berlin's top rabbi received thousands of requests for conversion, a special commission was created as far back as 1950 to review the applications and to ensure that former Nazis were not allowed to convert. This is obviously a problem you don't find in other countries. Some of the requests came from people who wanted to access benefits available to German Jews, but many came from German Germans who were burdened by feelings of guilt and shame and shock over the Holocaust. Most of the applicants were rejected, but many, mostly women, who were married to Jewish men, including survivors, became Jewish, setting the stage for a community that includes a very large number of converts. That's the Jewish community in Germany. A, um, a woman named Amital Gerstetter uh, is a, a cantor in a synagogue in Berlin. And uh, she wrote an article uh, that is upsetting the Jewish community there. She is a cantor in a synagogue, a woman cantor. She's the first German-born female cantor, and she's become a persona non grata in a very sanctuary in former East Berlin after she wrote a column criticizing conversion in Germany in a major German newspaper, Die Welt. In the column titled, Why the Increasing Number of Converts is a Problem for Judaism, she charged that too many people in Germany convert for the wrong reasons. For example, they want to atone for their family's Nazi past, or to identify with the victims rather than perpetrators. And she criticized the fact that converts fill numerous Jewish leadership roles in Germany. So, uh, the question is, why are these people converting, and what percentage of the Jewish community in Germany will they become? Because the very large number of new Jews has led, apparently, to a considerable change in Jewish life in Germany. The, the a synagogue service seems more like an interreligious event than a visit to a synagogue. Now, there is a uh, rabbi there named Walter Hamolka, 
who himself is a convert to Judaism, who founded Germany's Reform Rabbinical Seminary, which is called the Abraham Geiger College, and he uh, became a rabbi after converting, and he founded this college in uh, 1999, and of course he's mired in all kind of controversies. The um, the uh, the some people who converted while studying in New York, uh, later entered rabbinic school, were ordained in Israel. A number of synagogue regulars have converted as well. So as one person commented, those people in our shul who converted and who adored the wonderful voice of the chazan are flabbergasted that, she, that the chazan should write an article against conversion. The uh, Interesting. The, the, the article raised important questions, like the phenomenon of so many converts in Germany is really interesting and sometimes very problematic, and it needs to be looked at with clear eyes. Being conscious and open about it is something that is required of people who have converted. In other words, the number of converts in Germany is high, much higher than in other countries, apparently. That is a very strange phenomenon. A lot of people in Germany think that conversions have uh, gone out of proportion. It is a symptom of trauma for both sides. The uh, she, uh, What happened is there are a lot of Germans who feel guilty about what happened to the Jews during the Second World War and decided to, for this reason to become Jewish. So... All in all, there are about 100,000 members of Jewish communities under the Central Council of Jews in Germany, many more who are not uh, affiliated. A great majority of Jews who arrived from the Soviet Union since 1990. Within the past 21 years, almost 2,000 people have converted, according to the Central Welfare Board of Jews in Germany, to about an average of about 80 persons per year. In 2021, there were only 43 conversions, and they were orthodox, the, uh, and not through other rabbis. Now, interesting, one of the things that's concerning the Jewish community is that many of these converts have assumed formal leadership positions in their communities, and they, uh, they're, they're converts, and it makes a lot of the uh, original Jews a little bit nervous the uh, there are many non-orthodox rabbinical schools in the United States where uh, people can become rabbis, and many of these German Jews have studied there and become conservative rabbis. So anyhow, the point I wanted to make was the idea that too many German Jews are convert German uh, non-Jews are converting to Judaism is uh, something that's really bothering the Jewish community there. And uh, it's something that's really under the headlines, but I think it should be of interest to the listeners. The next item on a completely different subject has to do with a group of LGBT um, uh, persons who want to open up a club at Yeshiva University. And the uh, university was opposed to it, and it got up as far almost to the Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor 
permitted Yeshiva University to refuse to recognize an LGBT student club that the school in New York City had said violates its religious values. So they, the, the uh, Supreme Court justice blocked a judge's ruling of a lower court uh, who ordered the university to allow the group. The, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the, uh, so the Meyer put on hold for now the judge's ruling that the city, that the city uh, of New York has an anti-discrimination law and it requires his university to recognize what's called the Yeshiva University Pride Alliance as a student club while the school pursues an appeal in the lower court. Now, the truth of the matter is that Sota Mayor is quite a liberal judge, but she handles certain cases for the court from a group of states, including New York. So uh, it's interesting. The uh, the I don't want to go into the halachic um, um, implications here. The, the YU Pride Alliance formed unofficially as a group in 2018 but Yeshiva University determined that granting an official status would be incons inconsistent with the school's Torah values and the religious environment it seeks to maintain. Now, it's interesting, the dispute hinges in part on whether Yeshiva University is a religious corporation and therefore exempt from New York City human rights law because the human rights law of New York City bans discrimination by a place or provider of public accommodation. So the um, a New York State judge back in June determined that the school's primary purpose is education, not religious worship, and it's subject to anti-discrimination law. But uh, the question is, what is really the purpose of this university? So... Uh, the, the, the spokesman for the university said, as a deeply religious Jewish university, Yeshiva cannot comply with that order uh, to allow this group because doing so would violate its sincere religious beliefs about how to form its undergraduate students and Torah values. So the, uh, the, the university, which calls itself modern orthodox, is based in Manhattan, it has some branches, it has roughly 6,000 students enrolled in undergraduate and graduate programs. Uh, among the school's values, according to its website, are believing in the infinite worth of each and every human being and the responsibility to reach out to others in compassion. So uh, that's an interesting thing that happened. By the way, along these same lines, during the Supreme Court term that ended in June, the court backed a public high school football coach in Washington State who refused to stop leading Christian prayers with players on the field after games, and the court ruled in favor of Christian families in Maine who sought access to taxpayer money to pay for their children to attend religious schools. So uh, it's interesting that the, the court is now facing all kinds of dis problems that you could never would have imagined a few years ago. And the upcoming uh, term of the Supreme Court begins on October 3rd. The court will decide a major new legal fight pinning religious liberty against LGBT rights 
involving an, an a evangelical Christian web designer's free speech claim that she cannot be forced under a Colorado anti-discrimination law to produce websites for same-sex marriages. So the, this whole LGBT and same-sex, this whole thing that never existed years ago or existed undercover has become a major issue in the United States and it's affecting religious institutions. I, uh, I myself are not uh, taking a position in the matter. I just want to uh, listen to know these are things that are under the headlines, but they'll probably become uh, more known in a very short period of time. On an altogether different subject, the, uh, the United States State Department uh, recently came out for an, uh, with a call for a change in how the Israeli army uh, takes care of engagements in Judea and Samaria. Israel, the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, has rules of engagement that are established, they're reviewed by the higher brass of the army, and the soldiers are expected to uh, follow these uh, orders and these rules. Remember, you often have a case where soldiers have to go into crowded uh, areas of, uh, of Palestinian towns. And I know myself, I, I served in those areas, and a lot of the uh, streets are not much more than alleys. And you're in an area where a terrorist can pop out in front of you, behind you, from a window without knowing about. It's very dangerous. So the... Uh, the Americans said that, and I quote, we're going to continue to press our Israeli partners to closely review policies and practices on rules of engagement and consider additional steps to mitigate the risk of civilian harm, protect journalists, and prevent uh, tra tra tragedies. This is a key goal for us. This is what the State Department said. And they went on to demand accountability from the Israeli military not just the taking of responsibility by Israel, but the, uh, they want really to mix in to what Israel is doing under very difficult circumstances. The, uh, the interesting that several politicians not in the government uh, spoke up about it here, and they said that uh, the decision as to when and how IDF soldiers use live fire will be determined only by Israeli army commanders and not by the White House. At any given moment, there are Palestinian terrorists trying to murder Israelis, not the other way around. Our hand is not light on the trigger where there is more imperative to strike terrorists to save human lives. That's what uh, former Prime Minister Bennett wrote to the American State Department and a day later, the Prime Minister added that no one will dictate our live-fire instructions to us when we are fighting for our lives. I will not let a fighter in the IDF who defended his life under fire from terrorists be prosecuted just so that we will receive applause abroad. So the uh, it seems that Israeli friends and foes abroad alike need to be reminded that a series of Palestinian terrorist attacks killed 19 Israelis between March and May, and that it drove the Israeli army onto the offensive, and they go into these Arab villages every night. 
And uh, these are nightly operations against terrorist cells across the West Bank, especially in Janine and Mablis, where the Palestinian Authority has lost control. Israel troops, Israeli troops repeatedly have come under heavy gunfire during these raids in which 1,500 terrorists and terrorist suspects have been arrested and quite a few have been killed. And the chief of staff of the Israeli army made a statement, our test is protecting the citizens of Israel and our mission is to thwart terrorism. We will reach every city, every neighborhood, every alley, every house, or every basement for that purpose. Our activity will continue. We are prepared to intensify it as needed. So that is what the head of our army said in response to the American statement. The, uh, it's interesting, foreign attempts to interfere in Israel's security posture uh, continue. The Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken of the United States, personally expressed Israeli officials about Israeli army rules of engagement, and the U.S. Embassy in Israel reportedly is investigating the record of one of the uh, battalions. So uh, this, this, we cannot expect or allow others to decide what is safe for us. Uh, there was also a statement from the European uh, diplomats. Of group, a group of them came to the Israeli foreign ministry and declared they did not accept Israel's terror designation, and they said they claimed they hadn't received any evidence. So uh, I, I think it's important to note that these high-minded European diplomats do not know better than Israel about the inner workings and plotting of Palestinian terrorist-supporting groups. The, uh, as a matter of fact, they continue to bankroll these agencies. So the, a lot of the uh, terrorist money comes from European NGOs. So um, U.S. and European diplomats have taken them more than ever judging and criticizing Israel's security and settlement operations, even in the eastern Jerusalem. So uh, they have a lot to say about Israeli police response to Arab rioters, but very little to say about the Palestinian authorities turning of various sites into armed camps or open warfare against Israel. For example, the Temple Mount and the Al-Aqsa Mosque the the terrorists store weapons there, and uh, nothing is said about it. The, uh, the Biden administration also seems to have opened a new front against Israel regarding foreign travel restrictions in the West Bank. Washington is upset by new regulations scheduled to take effect next month, allowing Israel's coordinator of government activities to further control the entry of foreign students and foreign lecturers to the West Bank, and of foreign spouses married to Palestinians. This is a very, very touchy subject. So you have to ask yourself, what, what, just what exactly has, who has the right to tell Israel how to defend its borders? Not the EU, the European Union, or the UN Security Council. The, uh, it's interesting. There is a 11-year-long civil war slaughter in Syria when Iran subverses muckraking across the Middle East, and the UN says nothing about. So I think we have to tell the UN, really, 
to, to put it bluntly, to mind its own business. We do what is best for the citizens of Israel. And the citizens of Israel, by the way, not only include Jews, it also includes Israeli Arabs. So our job, the job of our government, the job of our military is to defend our people the best way it can. And nobody has any right to tell us how to do it. That they, that they should stick to their own problems. I know that sounds nasty, but when you when it, when they interfere with your defense of yourself, you have to be a little bit nasty in your response. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to touch upon a number of topics not related uh, in this portion of the program because I think they're important for people to know even though they are not in the general headlines. The first item has to do with the fact that Poland evades property restitution. For example, Poland demands reparations from Germany and offers Israel to join in, thus refraining from restituting Jewish property, and Germany still owes Israel a third of the 1952 reparations agreement. Poland which intends to demand $1.3 trillion from Germany and reparations for the damage that Germany caused it during World War II, is expecting Israel to join its claim because a significant part of the murdered were Jewish Poles. Not just a significant part, I mean the overwhelming majority. I don't have the figures in front of me. But uh, three million Jews were murdered, Polish Jews. I think that probably is the biggest number of any single group in Poland. Now, this indirect proposal is another Polish attempt to continue to evade the restitution of the remaining Jewish property in Poland. Jewish property in Poland was estimated at $3. billion in 1938 prices. Almost 50% of it, uh, over a billion dollars at the prices of that time, is Jewish real estate property, such as land, homes, residences, businesses, and agricultural lands that have nothing to do with Germany, and that Poland should have restituted long ago. Instead, the Polish Prime Minister responded to our Prime Minister with insistence that new Polish legislation would not jeopardize the chances of restitution by saying that he would not pay Polish Jews and their descendants. As he put it, not a zloty, not a euro, not a dollar. The Polish attempt at legislation that undermines the restitution of Jewish property has even caused diplomatic relations between Israel and Poland to freeze for a certain period. As for Germany's responsibility toward Israel, Germany has not yet paid a third of the reparation agreement 
signed between Israel and Germany in 1952. The agreement was signed with the West German government, which refused to pay for East Germany, so it was determined that it would bear about two-thirds of the total sum agreed upon, according to the ratio of the population and territory of each of the two Germanys at the time. The missing third, as it's called, is estimated today to be at least $18 billion when updated according to interest on a 30-year U.S. government bond. The new estimate was made by the American economist who has been employed by the White House, the U.S. Treasury, and the CIA. Now, with the reunification of East and West Germany in 1990, Germany was supposed to pay the missing third on its initiatives as part of all the debts of East Germany that it undertook to pay, and indeed paid almost without exception. But in the context of the missing third, which East Germany was supposed to pay, and now East Germany is part of Germany, United Germany did not do so and did not pay its share. Germany waited for the Israeli government request on the subject. For some reason, the Israeli government didn't appeal or claim the missing third from Germany to this very day. This month, on the 70th anniversary of the signing of the reparations agreement, our Prime Minister will visit Germany for different purposes. It's appropriate that he take advantage of the visit and demand the missing third. It's important to mention that the missing third is part of the existing agreement between the two countries and uh, Chancellor Merkel of Germany at the end of her term said that the German government would seriously discuss requests from Israel on this issue. The advance waiver by the governments of Israel to the government of United Germany for such a large sum is really puzzling and doesn't pass the test of morality, law, and common sense. In other words, at this moment, the West German government, which now is Germany united as to pick up the responsibilities of that part of Germany that it was called East Germany until they were unified. And they, they owe that money to Israel. That's a lot of money and it's a responsibility of our government to keep pursuing the issue. Since I mentioned Germany, I want to go on to another topic having to do with Germany which is really very moving. The first topic which I touched upon, of course, is the fact that I think that the German government owes us money. But this is a totally different subject. Uh, our, when Ezra Weitzman was our president, he, went, he spoke in Germany in 1996. When Moshe Katsav was president, he spoke in Germany in 2005. Shimon Peres spoke in 2010, Reuven Rivlin in 2020, and now our, our president, Isaac Herzog, spoke in Germany. All of them, while serving as Israel's president, addressed the Bundestag, Germany's parliament, 
in Hebrew. So even though an Israeli president addressing the German parliament is no longer really novel, it does remain symbolic and significant, and in truth it's quite moving. Hitler aimed to destroy the Jews, and here is the representative of the independent Jewish state speaking in the revived language of Hebrew, the language of the Jews speaking in the German parliament. When Weizmann addressed the Bundestag in 1996, it was a major news here in Israel because it was the first time. Herzog's speech was just recently, but it was mentioned on several hourly radio news bulletins. But in the expanded news programs throughout the day, the fact that our president spoke in Germany followed the other news uh, in the regular pre-election political affair. The Israeli president addressed The Israeli president addressed the German parliament in Hebrew. Uh, and it's interesting, the last, uh, that same parliament was addressed 77 years after the Nazis tried to destroy the Jewish people. So uh, since other presidents of Israel have already spoken, the fact that this present one spoke at the Bundestag is not such a big deal. Uh, so uh, it's sort of not novel. So it doesn't carry the significance anymore. So you don't hear much about it. Not hot, not it didn't get much uh, this, uh, coverage in the Israeli papers. But it really is important. Put in historical perspective, an Israeli president standing in the Parliament of Berlin addressing Germany is nothing short of remarkable. No matter how many times it's been done in the past, and when Herzog spoke in Hebrew. He essentially said, and I quote the translation, I stand here before you today, but I'm not alone. I am the president of the state of Israel, the sovereign and democratic state of Jewish people, the fulfillment of the prayers of so many generations. It's really interesting that 77 years after the Nazis tried to destroy the Jewish people, a president of the state of Israel spoke at the German parliament and he spoke in Hebrew. Now, it's, uh, now, it's no longer considered a big deal, but think about it for a moment. It is a big deal. Put in historical perspective, an Israeli president standing in the parliament in Berlin and addressing the Germany is nothing short of remarkable, no matter how many times it's been done in the past. And as I said, he spoke in Hebrew, and he said in the, the English translation, I stand here before you today, but I'm not alone. As the president of the state of Israel, the sovereign and democratic state of the Jewish people, this is the fulfillment of the prayers of so many generations.
But of all, above all, I stand here before you carrying a single imperative, one that alongside the Ten Commandments and love thy neighbor as thyself is perhaps most sublime, ethical, and binding biblical injunction for all Jews. Remember, remember, the Jewish people are a remembering people. This is an essential and inseparable part of our identity. And thus, treading on German soil, I cannot help but remember and retrieve the eternal photo out of my people in which are scattered countless images from this land, images of peaks, images of voids, unquote. Like the presidents who addressed the German parliament before him, Herzog noted the peaks, like the German Jewish luminaries, religious and secular, who enriched both German and Jewish life, and the valleys, the long chronicle of pogroms and riots and persecutions in Germany that culminated in the Holocaust. That's interesting. When uh, Shimon Peres spoke there, he took a little black uh, kippah out of his breast pocket at the beginning of his speech, that was back in 2010, and he recited Kaddish. And a decade, decade later, and Herzog now reached for their breast pockets, took out a kippah at the be beginning of their addresses, addresses, and recited the Yisker prayer for the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. The uh, it's interesting though that they changed the prayer a little bit to soften the way it referred. To the German nation. In the original, it says the murderous German nation, but he left that out. Now, naturally, each presidential speech, the speech of an Israeli president to the German Bundestag, followed a certain pattern. First, a reflection on the past and the imperative to remember then a look at the present state of German-Israeli relationships and Mideast events, and generally culminating in a promise to work together for a better future. So Herzog didn't deviate too far from this formula. Uh, he's, he had his own personal touch, his own uh, personal history. Uh, he had, he had uh, ancestors who lived in Germany. Uh, even in the city of uh, Hamburg. Uh, he recalled that his father, Chaim Herzog, who was the seventh president of Israel, he was the first Israeli president to visit Germany in 1987. During that visit, his father visited the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp where, when he was a British officer, he was among the liberators of the camp. So he gave a very moving speech. He remembered the first crusades, which actually gave birth to the Yisker prayer. He spoke of the duality of the Jewish experience with Germany. As a matter of fact, 
in, in what is now Germany, that area gave birth to some of the greatest biblical and Talmudic commentators. For example, Rabbi Shimshon Rufuel Hirsch back in the uh, 19th century. So there were a lot of Jews who were uh, titans of culture, intellect, and science. On the other hand, Germany also gave birth to the greatest atrocity ever inflicted on the Jewish people. The uh, by the uh, when Weizmann spoke there, that was in 1996. Uh, his speech was written by somebody else. It was a beautifully written speech, and he spoke about the Jews from Abraham and Mount Sinai. He spoke about the pogroms at mines, the gas chambers, and the modern state of Israel. The uh, it's interesting. Uh, Weizmann's uh, speech was magnificent. Uh, Weizmann said that this is not an easy visit. So uh, Herzog didn't address anything like that. Uh, the Weizmann said, it's not easy for me to stand here and speak with you, my friends, in this house. At that time, a visit to Germany by Israeli dignitaries still stirred debate in Israel. When Herzog's father, Chaim, first visited Germany in 1987, there was a fierce debate about the move. One of his predecessors, who was president, Ephraim Katsir, said it was not yet time for a visit to Germany. But today, these visits do not stir up any controversy at all which is proof, among other things, of the strong state of German-Israeli relations. A lot has changed, and it really is remarkable. By the way, another thing was really interesting in my mind. The second difference in the content of the speeches of Weizmann in 1996 and Herzog today was the amount of time spent discussing the Palestinian issue. Uh, Weizmann devoted, devoted nearly one-third of his address to the Palestinians and negotiations and the prospects of peace. This is understandable. He spoke just three years after the signing of the Oslo Accord and just sh uh, short of three months after Prime Minister Rabin was assassinated. The peace process at that time was very much on the agenda, both in Israel and around the world. Now, Herzog gave the subject maybe three short paragraphs, and part of that had to do with Palestinian terrorism. So this is a reflection of these times. There's no peace process to speak of, and the issue no longer is a top priority for the Europeans. They just don't care anymore. And the third glaring difference between the speeches of Weizmann in 1996 and Herzog now is Herzog devoted time speaking about the danger to Israel and the world of a nuclear Iran. He said, and I quote, the international community must stand on the right side of history, set clear conditions, impose essential sanctions, operate a buffer between Iran and nuclear capabilities, Europe, Europe must act and not back down. The state of Israel will defend itself and will fight by all means and will uh, necessary against threats to its citizens. What I call on the world to do 
is don't simply stand idly by. So, naturally, the word Iran did not appear in Weizmann's address in 1996, because that was Israel's priorities at the time. It didn't include Iran. The, uh, the times have changed, and the, the speech reflected those times. So, uh, I want to listen just to understand. I, didn't, I spent an unusually long time on the speech made in uh, Germany by our president, but I think it's important to note you know, we're talking about a situation where, where uh, in my lifetime, Jews were being pushed into gas chambers by Germans, and now we have a warming relationship between the state of Israel, which didn't exist that time, and Germany today. So I apologize if I spent so much time, but I think it's important. Our country is heading uh, in November for another election which I think is the fourth or the fifth in the last two and a half years. Actually, I lost count, but it's either, either four or five. Now, the, the country is getting by day to day with sort of caretaker and traditional governments because it almost seems that you don't need a government because everything seems to be moving smoothly. Uh, at least in uh, regular civilian life, and I assume in the army also. But you really can't be fooled because this crazy situation, and it is crazy, has consequences. We have terrible political instability, and this instability leads to a tremendous amount of internal strife particularly among the politicians. I don't know how much it affects the people. I think most of the people, like myself, have come to say life goes on with or without a government. That may be an infantile view, but I think it's how most people feel. The question is, how do Israel's enemies see what's happening now? And these enemies could take actions as a result of their perception of what is happening to Israeli society. The head of the Shin Bet, which is Israel's security agency, a man named Ronan Barr, said, and I quote, The last challenge is the deep and growing rift developing within Israeli society over its character. From the intelligence that we read and the inter interrogations with attackers and prisoners that we see, and many years of knowledge of our enemies, wherever and whomever they are, it is possible to say today, without any doubt, that the political instability in Israel, the growing internal division, the breaking up of the historical common denominators and the radicalized discourse, all these are a shot of encouragement to the countries of the axis of evil, to terrorist organizations, and to lone attackers. The prevailing feeling among our adversaries is that our historic comparative advantage the one that helped us for thousands of years 
our national resilience is dissipating. This insight should, uh, should disturb us more than anything else. This is something that the Shimet, the security service, can warn about, but certainly not deal with. That's something in every one of our hands. So that is a quote from the head of the Israel Security Agency. Now, his name is Barr, as I mentioned. Now, his mes message is clear. Israel's enemies are watching closely the developments inside the country. The unending elections, the divisions that these elections highlight, the extreme rhetoric that becomes the norm during political campaigns, the solidarity that erodes with each successive divisive election, the endless debate over the direction of the country, our enemies are watching this and they're coming to a conclusion that Israel is weak and divided and falling apart. So the time to act against us is now. Now, Israel needs to project societal strength and solidarity. How you appear to the rest of the world is really important. Instead, we are transmitting a sense of deep domestic division and the loss of common purpose. This would not be the first time Israel's enemies looked at the country's internal arguments and rifts and read them as a sign of weakness. And when Israel's enemies sense weakness, it's often just a matter of time because before they test the country of Israel's resolve. 22 years ago, after Israel withdrew from south, southern Lebanon, in a rush, by the way, the head of the Hezbollah terrorist group, Hassan Nasrallah, gave a speech in which, according to his reading of Israel's society at the time, he said that the Jewish state might own nuclear weapons and had the strongest war aircraft in the region, but it is feebler than a spider's web. That's what our prime enemy said. Nasrallah was saying that if you blow on the web hard enough, it'll disappear. Four months later, Yasser Arafat took his advice, and following the breakdown of the Camp David talks, when he did not get all he desired, he launched a protracted terrorist war against Israel, which has became known as the Second Intifada. So the head of... Um, Israel Security Service, the Shin Ben, Israel Security Agency, is warning of a repeat performance. Five elections in three and a half years convey the sense of a country that cannot get its act together. And if the country looks confused, it invites in adventurism by its enemies. There are consequences to going to elections time and time and time again without any conclusive decision. And these consequences go way beyond merely a lack of consistency in government policy. 
Repetitive elections are a sign of internal weakness. This reminds me of the French government before de Gaulle took over. There were governments were falling apart almost on a weekly basis. Elections were being held and the country was weak and it ended up the, with de Gaulle, de Gaulle, a strong man, putting the country in order. So as I said, a lot of elections looks bad. A lot more is at stake than perhaps not being able to pass a national budget. The country's politicians need to internalize this message. They should form a stable government after the next election, the fifth election, and put an end to a state of political affairs in this country that is as dangerous as it is ridiculous. More, more many elections means weakness, and weakness is seen by our enemies. Hopefully those organizations that keep us safe, like the army, don't in other words, all these elections don't bother them. They keep doing their duty, hopefully. I want to slip into another uh, subject that really bothers me. It's the chutzpah and the nerve of the U.S. ambassador to Israel. His name is Thomas Nides, and uh, he's convinced that the two-state solution is the way to keep Israel Jewish and democratic, according to him. To the Western mind, this view seems entirely logical. All Israel has to do is agree to a Palestinian state, and the problem will be solved, according to people like Thomas Nides, the U.S. ambassador. Unfortunately, this view is simplistic and it ignores the reality of the actual situation, not just in Israel, but in the Middle East in general. For over 70 years, the Palestinians have rejected every offer of a Palestinian state that would live peacefully alongside of Israel. And there, are many, there have been many offers. Instead, they have consistently called for a Palestinian state from the river to the sea with Jerusalem as its capital, and also they insist on the right of return of Palestinian refugees, of which there are approximately 7 million today. Now, you have to ask yourself, does Ambassador Nides really think that Hamas, Islamic Jihad, or any other uh, Islamic jihadist group will suddenly change its fanatical obsession of destroying Israel, every inch of Israel, of what they consider Palestinian land. Do, do you think that by agreeing to hand them a state will suddenly bring peace? Doesn't Nides know that the stated policy of the Palestinian Authority, and this is not a secret, this is the stated policy of the Palestinian Authority, is that no Jews will be allowed to live in Palestine, and that Palestinian refugees, including their descendants, 
must be settled in Israel. This demand would inevitably end in a Palestinian majority in Israel. The result will be the exact opposite of a Jewish and democratic Israel, which we are right now. All one has to do is read the Hamas Covenant and the PLO Charter to confirm the demands of the Palestinians. It is definitely not a two-state solution. The truth of the matter is that there are enough failed states in the Middle East without creating another non-viable state that has as its core demand the destruction of Israel. The Palestinians are not ready, even if they wanted peace with Israel, they have simply not arranged to set up a government that would rule the Palestinian state. They are busy terrorizing each other. No agreement will prevent the, uh, a Palestinian state from requesting help from other states. Now, this will be a green light for Russia and possibly Iran to respond to this by sending troops to Palestine in the same way as they responded to Syrian requests for help. Having Russian or Iranian soldiers looking down on Ben Gurion Airport is not a solution. It is the prelude to much greater Middle Eastern war. Ambassador Nyes, to stop deluding himself with wishful thinking about a two-state solution. There is no two-state solution. It, it is bandied about and spoken about. It has no meaning whatsoever. The future of peace in the Middle East lies in the expansion of the Abraham Accords. There's an agreement made by other Middle Eastern states with Israel when they realized that using the uh, Palestinians as a stick to poke Israel simply doesn't work. They worry about what is best for them. What is best for them, they have come to realize, is peace with, peace with Israel regardless of the Palestinians. The most that Israel can offer the Palestinians as some kind of autonomy over their own affairs in Gaza and parts of the West Bank where Palestinians are the majority. The, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, peace will come when the nations will beat their swords into plowshares. We don't see that coming in the immediate future. At some long-term future date, maybe, Maybe a two-state solution may be possible under the present circumstances, including the educational system in a Palestinian authority, where they teach kids from pre-kindergarten that the state of Israel has no right to exist. With that kind of education, there's no one with it to make peace or a two-state solution. However, some have said that the two-state solution is an oxymoron and is clearly not on the agenda. So Ambassador Nides 
was supposed to be a clever guy, otherwise he would have been chosen as the American ambassador. Somebody has to sit down with him and tell him the realities of the Middle East. By the way, I don't know what his background is as far as knowing what the Middle East is really about, but the statements about the two-state solution indicates that he has a lot to learn. Now, on another topic, something of interest, on September 11th, interesting date, uh, a new center was launched in London. It's called the London Center for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism. The public launch marked the opening of a three-day conference with a very impressive gathering of scholars in the field of anti-Semitism. They discuss contemporary anti-Semitism, its scope, its recent rise, and the problems confronted by researchers in the field. Now, information public so far about the new center reflects quite a number of goals. Its, uh, its directors have, uh, and the board of trustees have set forth a number of goals uh, encouraging and funding studies conducted by scholars, both accomplished and early career academics will hopefully carry the work on, convening more conferences and seminars, publishing its own academic book series, continuing the publication a thriving academic journal called the Journal of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. All of these are tools to be developed by this center and those affiliated with it. Yet, you have to ask a question. Is such a center uh, a necessity? It is true that a host of activities of various kinds, all aiming at confronting anti-Semitism, have sprung up recently either led by Jewish organizations and scholars or by NGOs and state institutions. But here is a non-affiliated independent center led by academic scholars established at a time when the public and the academic arena is filled and imbued with a hostile atmosphere targeting Jews, Israel as is a Jewish state, and Jewish students so that fair and unbiased academic research and publication are needed, I think. By these tools help hope to change this atmosphere which anti-Zionism is often a standard position and the anti-Semitism associated with it is angrily denied. You can be against the state of Israel according to the, all the anti-Semites, but not be an anti-Semite. Now, maybe young generations of students can be swayed away from the belief that the Jews today belong in the dark, oppressive side of humanity, as been the accusation so often in the past. Maybe the center will have proven a necessity. But one cannot help but notice that both public opinion in the Western world and the field of academic research have in recent years undergone polarization and politicization 
that have torn communities apart, including communities of scholarship. Balanced research does not have to be closed, and it does not have to protect itself by means of safe scholarly detachment. So what, what academic tools can do is to bring change into the public sphere by education and to challenge the alternative to the increasing ideological polarization that we see all around us, it particularly, I think, in the United States. If a new center can help to achieve the, the uh, decrease of polarization, then it will have proven to be a, a, a necessity. So they're all, it's nice to have new organizations. The question is, what are their goals? And uh, it's the establishment of a center and a conference are taking place. It's interesting to see what the result will be. Thanks for listening. Jay Shapiro signing off. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.